0: I completed my Master of Divinity degree at Asbury, and Asbury is in Kentucky, and the last year that I was finishing up that degree, uh, there was a story that came across uh, through the news headlines of a couple, uh, they were a married couple, and they won the Powerball lottery, and they took the one-time payout of a whopping $34.1 million. Um, seemed like, hey, this is a great thing, and uh, seemed like everything was going to be great for them moving forward in life. Um, But things did not exactly go as they had planned. Um, Immediately after they received the payout, this couple, uh, the Mack and Virginia Metcalf, um, Mack quit his job as a forklift operator, and Virginia quit her job as a factor in the factories. Um, But immediately after receiving the payout, they got divorced. Um, And then Mack was arrested for DUI, and then he was was, charged i guess sued um, and had to pay out 800000 000 uh, for back child support from a previous marriage um, he developed a terrible drinking problem and within three years of having won that powerball lottery mac died and he died of alcohol related diseases well things didn't go a whole lot better for virginia <clears throat> Virginia, uh, the police found her, or found a man dead in her house from a drug overdose not long after the Powerball winnings. Family and friends filed multiple lawsuits against her to try to get some of her money. And in 2005, they won the lottery in 2000. In 2005, authorities found her dead in her home, and she had been there for several days where she had laid undiscovered. Wow. Things did not exactly go as this couple had planned. Well, we're starting into a new series today uh, in the book of Esther, and we're going to see as this series unfolds that things did not exactly go as the main characters in this story had hoped that they would go. But we'll see how God worked in the midst of that and worked out good for them on their behalf. Our text for today comes from Esther chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 5 through 7. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word, Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. This is a little ways into the story itself. We'll do a little background work here in a moment, but let's go ahead and read this portion. Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Here we go. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now, before we dive into this story that's already unfolding there in chapter 2, we need to do a little bit of historical background, and to accomplish that, I'd like to do— to but point out some dates that we need to remember, some key dates um, leading up to this story here, some key dates in Israel's history. The first of those key dates is 587, 586 B.C. In 587, the Babylonians came for a third time to lay siege to to Jerusalem. They were sick of the Israelites. They were sick of all the rebellion. And so the Babylonians came, and they completely destroyed Israel in 586. They destroyed the the wall around the city, and they destroyed the temple itself. And so what happens is the Babylonians, uh, led by Nebuchadnezzar, carries off a bunch of the Jewish people back to uh, the ones that survived all this, back to the land of what's today modern-day Iraq, what was then um, Babylon. So that's the first key date, 586 B.C. The second key date is 539 B.C. In 539, um, a guy by the name of Cyrus the Great, also known as Darius the Mede, he went by both those names, he was the ruler of the Persian Empire, and he basically marched into Babylon and took over the Babylonian Empire uh, uncontested. And that happened in 539. Well, Cyrus was known to be a very gracious leader. And one of the things that he decreed, one of his edicts at the very beginning of his reign, was that he allowed any of the conquered people who had been brought back to Babylon to return to their homeland. And so uh, many of the Jewish people decided to do that. Um, and then, uh, so the book of Esther is written uh, not about the Jews who were back in Jerusalem, but it's actually written about the Jews that remained in Persia uh, during this uh, during Cy- or in the aftermath of Cyrus's reign. A third date that I want to point out to you is 490 B.C. 490 BC, uh, Cyrus's successor was a guy by the name of King Darius, and he invaded Greece. Uh, and he's defeated in his uh, attempt to try and take over the Greek Empire at the Battle of Marathon, which is captured in Herodotus's epic poem. I'm looking at my daughter because she memorized most of that. Darius then returns to Persia, determined to raise an even bigger army and to go to Greece. Uh, While he is raising up this army, Darius dies, and his son, Xerxes, takes over the throne and takes over his dad's lust to try and conquer the Greek empire. In 483 BC, this is our fourth date. We've got five of them here. Our fourth date, 483 BC, it's the year that the second year of Xerxes' reign, and Xerxes begins to assemble a massive army to go fight. Uh, I think we have a map. Can we bring up that map? You can see the little map. It's got a star on it. And that's the location of Susa, the capital city of Persia, okay? So he assembles this massive army in Susa, and it takes him multiple years to do this. Um, And while they're there, uh, Xerxes assembling this army, the events of Esther chapter 1 take place, 483 B.C. Um, And now we know from Persian history that it takes three years for Xerxes to pull this army together. And during that time, princes and nobles and engineers and soldiers were all streaming into the capital city, and he decides he wants to entertain these folks. He needs to feed all these people that are um, gathered together to go make war. Uh, Last date, key date number 5, 480 BC, Xerxes sets out for Greece, he invades Greece, he defeats the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae, it's actually captured, some of you may have seen a movie called 300, and that's what that movie is talking about. Xerxes defeats the Spartans, and then he goes on to conquer Athens, and he burns it to the ground, but after multiple years of fighting there in Greece, um, he ends up defeated, um, and he goes back, tucks tail, and goes back to Persia, um, feeling pretty sorry for himself. All right, well, that's the historical backdrop leading up to what happens here in the book of Esther. And so let's go ahead and dive into the text itself. Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Here we go. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, that's another name for Xerxes. Some of your translations say Ahasuerus, some of your translations say Xerxes. Xerxes. Um, Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, so way east, the Persian Empire extended way far to the east and extended way far out to the west, all the way into northern Africa, into Ethiopia. So this was a massive territory, the the big empire of the world at that time. Verse 2, In those days when Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, Verse 3, In the third year of his reign, which would have been 482 B.C., Xerxes gave a feast for all of his officials and his servants. This is that army that's been amassed in Susa. It says the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and the princes, 127 of them, 27 of them were before him. So he had this massive gathering of all these really important people who were going to go make war for him against the Greek Empire to try and avenge his father's loss in Greece. Verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So in other words, this guy puts on a lavish feast for all of these soldiers, all these nobles, all these generals for 180 days. It's remarkable. Um, And so he feeds all these people and they have this this wonderful, ongoing, uh, elaborate party together. And uh, I think it's worth noting that the dates that the Bible gives for all of these events um, line up exactly with the with the Persian um, history books. Let me summarize what happens next. At one of these parties, Xerxes decides to show off the beauty of his wife, the queen. Her name was Vashti. And he commanded her to get dressed up and to come out and parade around in front of all of these nobles and all these generals. And she refused to do it. She didn't want to get in her nicest gown. She didn't want to get her hair all put together. And she didn't want to come out there and be paraded in front of all these folks. And so she refused to do it. And it was a public refusal, because everybody knew that he had made this request. Publicly had made the request. They all were expecting this. And then she didn't come. And so it left uh, Xerxes He's kind of embarrassed um, and humiliated him. And so you say, Gordon, well, why did she refuse to do it, knowing what it was going to do to her husband and how he was going to feel about this? Well, I don't know why she refused to do it, but the point is that she refused to do it. And because of that, it made Xerxes incredibly angry. And so he decided he was going to depose her as the queen of the kingdom. Skip forward to chapter 2 and verse 1. We're getting close to the stuff that we read just a moment ago. Chapter 2 and verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, and remember he remembered Vashti and what she had done and had been decreed against her. Verse two. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. So he no longer has a queen, and now he's he's looking around and wants to uh, get on Harmony.com or whatever the website is, and he's trying to find himself a new queen. Verse three. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins. To the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody or the supervision of this guy named Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And while they are under his care, let their cosmetics be given to them. Now, when they're talking about cosmetics here, they're not referring to makeup. They're not referring to only makeup. Makeup search, certainly part of that, but they're also referring to pedicures and they're referring to manicures and they're referring to you know steam baths that would exfoliate the skin and all this. It's basically a spa treatment is what these ladies are going to have and go undergo. Verse 4, and let the young woman who pleased the king become the queen instead of Vashti. This advice pleased the king, and so that's what the king decided to do. Now, I think it's important to look down to verse 16 of chapter 2 because it, because it is there that we are told that the search for the new queen uh, takes place. It says, in the seventh year, in the seventh year of Xerxes' reign, that is between chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Because in chapter 1, he's uh, holding this lavish feast for everybody. And then several years later here, uh, the Bible says there's an interval of four years that takes place in the seventh year of his reign. But because we are such great students of history here at Hebron, and we know our history, and we love our archaeology, right? And because we are so on top of it, and we've seen the movie 300 uh, of our Persian history, we know what happened during those intervening years. In year 5 of Xerxes' reign, we know that he invaded Greece. And we know that in year six of his reign, he was defeated in Greece. And we know that in year seven of his reign, we know that Xerxes returned to Susa uh, with his tail tucked between his legs, looking for some companionship, feeling sorry for himself, thinking about who this new queen might be. And so we see that the events of Esther chapter two also fit perfectly with the Persian history books. Interesting. Uh, You say, Gordon, wait just a minute. I've heard you say three or four times now that the events of the Bible fit perfectly with the other, you know, extra biblical evidence that's out there. What's the big deal? Why is it so important? Well, friends, it's so important because if we can't trust what the Bible says about Persian history, then how do we know we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? How do we know we can trust what the Bible has to say about the resurrection? How do we know we can trust what the Bible says about how it is that we get to heaven? Friends, it's either an all or nothing deal. The trustworthiness of the Bible is everything. Uh, John Wesley was the one who said that a perfect God would not produce an imperfect book. It's either all or it's nothing. The Bible is either completely trustworthy at every point or it is suspect at every point. And as we have seen today, when we take the events of Esther and compare them and lay them alongside the facts of Persian history, what we find is that the Bible passes the test once again with flying colors. Amen? Verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. And so Mordecai's dad was a guy by the name of Jair, Um, and his grandfather was Shimei, and his great-grandfather was Kish. That's what that verse just told us. Look at verse 6. We learn in verse 6 that Kish was part of the people who had been carried away from Jerusalem. You remember our dates way back at the beginning in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire at the time were the folks that were ruling that part of the world, and they came to Jerusalem and they just they decimated Jerusalem and they took the survivors, the Jewish survivors back to Babylon, back to their homeland, took them out of their home territory. It was a way of conquering those people. And so we learn here in verse 6 that the grandfather of Mordecai was one of those people who was taken in 586 back to the land of Babylon. Now we know from the story that Mordecai was a middle aged man, maybe in his 50s. Verse, verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, that was her Persian name, the daughter of his uncle. So sometimes in some, I've heard sermons on Esther before, folks refer to Mordecai's uncle Mordecai. Mordecai was actually uh, Esther's much older cousin is actually what he was. And he becomes her adoptive father. We'll see that. And then the verse goes on to say why Mordecai was caring for her. It says in verse 7, for she had neither father nor mother. The verse then goes on to say that she was a young woman. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. That is that she won all the pageants that they had had in the area, wherever it was that she lived. And now she's up for the biggest prize of all. She is a finalist for the crown. It says there at the end of verse 7 that Mordecai took her as his own daughter, that is, he raised her, verse 8. And so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when young women gather, uh, and, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel uh, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had the charge of all those women, verse 9. And the young woman Esther pleased Haggai and won his favor. Says, and the Bible says that he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen women, get this, from the king's palace... Now there were many women that could have come to attend to Esther, but the women that came to attend to Esther were appointed to her by Haggai, whose favor she had won. So this guy Haggai had some strings that he could pull and he was a real influencer. And they were people, these were people who worked in the king's palace. That is, they were cosmetic professionals. They were beauticians. Perhaps one of them was a personal trainer. Perhaps one of them was a dietitian. Uh, They had all kinds of skill sets, uh, but these folks came and attended to her and, and gave her everything that she needed. So apparently, the way that this thing worked is if you got Haggai on your side, uh, then you have the best of the best, and that's what Esther received. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her, her people or kindred. That is, she had not revealed the fact yet that she was Jewish. Everybody just thought she was Persian. And so she hadn't let anybody know what her nationality was, what her background was. For Mordecai had commanded her or had advised her not to do so, not to tell. Verse 11, And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem, We're out to where Esther was staying to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, it's a really beautiful picture here that the Bible displays. Um, This is her cousin Mordecai, her much older cousin Mordecai, who's taken her into his house. Um, And he is like any father would do, wanting to check up on his daughter and wanted to check up on this little girl. And they don't get to talk to one another. I don't know, it doesn't seem like that's the case, but they do see one another every day. He goes out to the gate, and he waves through the gate and reassures her, and she's encouraged by that. He just wants to know where she's at and that she's doing well, and um, that's perhaps all that she needed. Uh, But that's just a wonderful, sweet image that we get there. Skip on down to verse 17, last verse. The king loved Esther more than all the others, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so uh, basically, the king said, I don't need to see anybody else. This is the gal I want to spend the rest of my life with. Uh, and, he, and he married her faster than you can say Persian rug. <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, all right, well, that's our story for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question what difference does all this make to my life say gordon that's a that's a grand story and it seemed like it has a really wonderful happy ending and and it does as you continue to read through the book of esther things just uh kind of head downhill as any story would but then they pick back up and and it's a really beautiful story um but uh you say you know i'm really happy for esther i'm really happy that the bible condones pedicures but what difference does any of this make to me how does this help me in my life Well, that's a really great question let's see if we can answer that together uh, whether or not you're familiar with this story, let me, let me tell you how things wrap up. I'm Spoiler alert, okay? God works out a great deliverance for the Jewish people because, of him, because Esther becomes the queen. Getting her into that position, getting that crown on her head, results in the Jewish people being delivered from annihilation. The Jewish people being literally delivered from annihilation, all being wiped out. So we see that Esther is the key to God saving his people, not just way back then, but also moving forward beyond Esther's time in human history to the story of the cross itself. You see, Esther's grandson would become a guy by the name of King David, and that out of the line of King David, would great, Esther's great 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 going out of ways grandson would become a fellow by the name of Jesus um, who would go to the cross and would save us from our sins. So let's kind of process through these events for just a moment to see how it was that God got Esther to where he did. The uh, first thing is that in order for Esther to, de- be, to deliver the Jewish people from annihilation, he had to get Esther installed as queen of Persia. So working backwards here. In order for Esther to be installed as queen of Persia, he had to have a refi- she had to have a refined and a cultured upbringing, something that Mordecai could provide for her. Uh, but in order for her to be raised in the capital of Susa, where Mordecai was, where she could get this culture and refined upbringing, Esther had to move there because it was not her hometown. And in order for her to move there, Esther had to transpi- events had to transpire that would bring her to the house of Mordecai. So the question is, just how did Esther both get to Susa and be raised by Mordecai? Well, Esther chapter 2 and verse 7 says that Mordecai had taken her in as his own daughter when her father and her mother had died. That was the event that brought Esther to Mordecai's doorstep. The answer there is that her mom and dad died. And the Bible is very clear to make this point. It says it twice. In fact, if you skip forward to verse 15, it repeats it again. It says, "When the turn came for Esther, uh, the time came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, I mean, and it's like here the Bible just interrupts this story that it's telling of Esther and her becoming the queen and, and, the, and she, her being sought after. And it reminds us again here in verse 15 of how she got to this point, uh, that she's entering into the house of somebody that's not her mom and dad is, that's raising her. We don't know for sure how old Esther was when she arrived at Mordecai's doorstep, but since that's, but since that same verse, verse 7, says that Mordecai raised her that he had taken her as his own. We would think that she wasn't 15, 16 years old, but that she was probably much younger when all this happened. And you talk about a devastating blow for Esther. Mom and dad are gone. She's grown up in a foreign land, and now she's being taken to a place that she doesn't know, to a school that she doesn't know, to live with a perfect stranger, a relative that she, that's, that's distant and she doesn't know, Um, And she's in a strange city with no friends. Um, Little Esther must have felt like her entire world was collapsing around her. And so we need to stop and acknowledge the incredible amount of pain and heartache in the heart of this little girl as she's taken from everything familiar and everything that she loves and placed in a completely different and unknown situation. This little girl was hurting what about Mordecai? Don't forget about him. Mordecai is a middle-aged man or older. He's got no kids at home. There seems to be no indication in the text that there ever were kids at home. So more than likely, Mordecai is a bachelor. And all of a sudden, he's being awakened in the middle of the night. Uncle Mordecai, I'm thirsty. Can you get me a cup of water? He's never had that before. He doesn't know what that's all about. Um, All of a sudden, he's got trips back and forth to the doctor that he's got to make. He's got trips back and forth to school. He's got ballet lessons that he has to deal with. He's got homework assignments that he has to help her with. And all of a sudden, he's a dad at the father-daughter dance. I mean, things are just, his whole world got turned upside down. And um, I'm sure Mordecai made his bed when he felt like it before Esther came along. I'm sure he did the laundry when he felt like it before she came along. I'm sure that he washed the dishes when he felt like it. And I'm sure he burped at the dinner table. Thank you very much. (laughs) You talk about things not going as planned for either one of these characters in this story. And yet, even though Esther nor Mordecai could see it at the time, when we know the end of the story, we know that God knew what he was doing all along. God was using what looked on the human level like tragedy. And it was. Let's not diminish it. But God was working all of that together for good, and he gave tragedy and heartbreak and struggle a purpose. You know, it's amazing. This wasn't just for the good of the Jewish people. I mean, we know the story of deliverance for the Jewish people, but it also was great for Esther. She became queen of the greatest empire in the world at that time. And Mordecai, if you keep reading in the story, We'll see this in the coming weeks. Mordecai ends up being promoted uh, to prime minister of the biggest empire in the world at that time. So it was a blessing not just to the Jewish people, not just to King David and to you and I through the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was a blessing in their life as well. You know God did this very same thing for Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? God used some really awful circumstances in his life, rejection and betrayal of his brothers, sold into slavery, thrown into jail unjustly, and God used all of that to get Joseph right to where God needed him to be to become the prime minister of Egypt. God knew what he was doing in the life of Joseph. How about the story of Ruth? God knew what he was doing there her husband died her father-in-law died she followed naomi back to israel and lived in poverty with her mother-in-law the bible says that ruth was out picking up grain in the field that the the harvesters had come through the grain that had fallen on the ground and that's how she was feeding herself and her mother-in-law naomi and then comes along this fellow by the name of boaz and he was wealthy and he was a godly man and he was handsome and best of all boaz was available And uh, he saw Ruth, and he got stars in his eyes, and he married her, and suddenly Ruth finds herself with the wife of a godly man, a wealthy man, a wonderful man, and she becomes the great-grandmother of a fellow named King David and the great-great-great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The point I'm trying to make is that in every single one of these situations, God knew exactly what he was doing. He was working those things together for good to be a blessing, whether it be in Esther's life, Joseph's life, Ruth's life, or in the lives of others. God was so far ahead of Esther, and God was so far out in front of Mordecai and the situation that they found themselves in. Here's the key. When they trusted God, and these people gave God time to finish what he was up to, God proved in every situation that he knew what he was doing. Now, let's talk about you and me. You know, many of us can relate to the story of Esther. Many of us can say, you know what? I remember when my life was falling apart. Some of us are going through situations like that right now where things are unraveling. And we've had tragic things happen, and we've had painful things happen, and we've had struggles. And maybe some of us even, again, are walking through that today. And we turn to God every time and we say, God, why is this happening to me? God, you are a loving God How can a loving God allow these things to happen? And God's response to us in every case is to point us to the Word of God, which reminds us again and again that God knows what He's doing. Friends, I'm here today to assure us again from God's Word that God is so far out ahead of us. And I'm here to assure us that God knows what He's doing He has a plan for all of this. He does. That's what his word tells us. It's just that in our puny little minds, in our puny little logic, and in our puny little wisdom, we don't see it right away any more than Esther or Mordecai or Joseph or Ruth could see it as well. Listen, friends, this doesn't always, we don't always see it happen. We don't always see, okay, God, now I see how you were going to use this. We don't always see that in a week. We don't always see that in a year. We may never live to see it, but it always happens. So let us trust God and give him time to finish what he's up to in our lives. And God promises that every time you and I will end up declaring that God knew exactly what he was doing. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word today. Lord, as we assess the struggles in our life and in our, those that we love and care about, Lord, may we know that you are working all those things together for good. You promised us that, Romans 8, 28. And Lord, we see that same principle lived out over and over again through the characters of Scripture. Lord, you're always working through situations. You're always working m- multiple steps out in front of us through human history work out your good purposes for your glory and our blessing. God, may we just today, in this time of communion, as we gather around this table, to be reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body. We see your plan of salvation played out in history. And so, God, we are so thankful. As we uh, receive these elements today, Holy Spirit, encourage us, no matter our struggle, no matter our obstacle, to know, God, that you are creating purpose and a blessing out of it all. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.